This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ruben Nunheis. Today, I will speak with Mark Andreevich about his book, Automated Media. Mark is a professor of media studies at Monash University, where he heads the Automated Society Working Group in the School of Media, Film, and Journalism. He is the author of InfoGlut, How Too Much Information Has Changed the Way We Think and Know, I Spy, Surveillance and Power in the Interactive Era, and Reality TV, The Work of Being Watched, as well as numerous journal articles and book chapters on surveillance, popular culture, and digital media. Mark, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, to jump right in, uh, one of the first questions we like to ask is, can you introduce yourself and talk a bit about your academic interests? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to kind of reverse engineer how I got to something like automated media. Um, but I started out my academic career with a really strong interest in digital art and the ways in which interactivity was reconfiguring the relationship between creators and audiences. Um, and, you know, you've got to think back to the period of the 1990s to, <laughs> um, to connect with that uh, place in time. And there was a big, uh, you know, it, I, I think that was the origin of the kind of, or at least one strand of the hopefulness in utopian dreams that came with the rise of the internet and then the World Wide Web, this notion that um, the type of power relations that had characterized a primarily one-way media system associated with the mass media were going to be dramatically reconfigured uh, by interactive media. And that um, the what we were seeing in the cultural realm uh, with the rise of things like interactive artworks and hypertext novels and so on heralded a type of democratization of 
power relations in which um, more people would have more access to shaping the world that they lived in and that culture served as a type of metaphor for that. Um, so uh, the, uh, and as somebody who I guess comes with a kind of critical bent, I was quite um, excited by that uh, hope, but I also had that thought of, well, what's going to happen when capitalism really gloms on to all of these capabilities and in what way are they already being kind of framed by the interests of capital? Um, and so the course of my PhD was kind of asking this question, what happens when interactivity becomes folded into uh, the power relations associated with, uh, in particular, capitalist uh, structures of production and distribution and consumption. Um, and so I, I was trying to think of a site where one could look at how the promise of interactivity was being taken up in the in realms um, that were not, you know, sequestered to the aesthetic. And, and uh, you know, in some sense, it's, you know, what happens when the capabilities of a new medium that are often experimented with by artists and creators who tend to be ahead of the field in terms of imagining the possibilities of, of a new medium. Um, what happens when those possibilities kind of get folded into existing power structures? And that's what really drove um, my first research project and probably continues to drive me now. Uh, and, you know, my first book, which was based on the work I'd done for my PhD, was, look, was looking at a cultural site where you could see interactivity um, being mobilized for economic purposes. And interactivity is kind of an interesting word. I'm, I, I'm, I'm struck by how important a word that was in the 90s uh, and maybe early 2000s and what a role it's played in shaping you know, some of the lexicon that we inherit, you know, the iPad and the iMac. That little I was you know, designated interactivity. We don't talk about interactivity so much anymore. Those eyes seem almost vestigial in our automated contexts. Uh, and, um, but at, at the time, interactivity, of course, was folded into a whole set of business logics that were associated with uh, what might be described in, in some sense as an extension of the logic of the post-war, post-Fordist uh, economic arrangements, which had to do with how do you create increasingly flexible, increasingly customized um, products and services? And, you know, the answer that uh, was reached around the very same time that the internet was taking off was, well, we need uh, we need consumers to take on some of the role of production. And fortunately, we are now just developing these technologies that make that possible. So if you look at the business literature at that time, mass customization was a big, uh, a big thing. And um, the discussion there was very much around these logics of offloading some of the responsibility of what had hitherto been described as kind of market research onto the populace via interactive technologies. You know, how are you going to know what they want, what their interests are, what their needs are, what their tastes uh, and preferences are? Well, they need to start providing that for you. And how are they going to how are they going to tell you, you know, the specific details of their circumstances um, that uh, allow for the custom tailoring of um, goods? 
products and services. Um, and I, I kind of landed as, as a kind of cultural phenomenon that kind of that combined this economic logic of offloading responsibilities of production onto consumers and the and the democratic hope of interactive media. Uh, I landed on reality TV. Uh, so so my first book was about reality television, and it, it's kind of interesting. It it got me. Um, a position, one of my first academic positions was as a television studies scholar, which I'm, I'm probably not really a television <laughs> studies scholar. I, I you know, I'm, I, I identify much more with um, be, with the approach of a kind of digital media uh, scholar. Um, but I was writing about television. But what interested me about reality TV, and again, we have to remember back to, you know, the prehistoric time before social media, um, when... Uh, this notion that uh, you know regular people would become uh, the uh, uh, content creators for a whole genre um, that really relied upon the mobilization of these promises of interactivity, and even further, the equation between interactivity and monitoring or surveillance, which was mobilized by this mass mass customization economy. Right, the the, the, the equation there was. Um, your participation is, in a sense, um, active submission uh, to the forms of monitoring that we need to engage in in order to be able to create this um, targeted, customized economy. Uh, and what was really interesting to me about reality TV was the way in which it, it both in political economic terms, mobilized the promise of interactivity of offloading important parts of the productive promise uh, process onto consumers you know um you're not just the viewers of the show you'll actually be the creators of the show um in in some instances by proxy we'll pick some of you um like these early reality tv shows like the real world and um uh oh you know survivor and uh, and Big Brother, um, but also a lot of these shows incorporated elements of audience interactivity that you know still persist to some degree in these shows where you uh, where the audience has a chance to vote on you know picking a winning candidate. Um, but that element was was really folded into shows like Big Brother early on, where, um, for example, in the early seasons of Big Brother. Maybe now still, I don't know. I haven't followed it. Um, but th there was a website where you could go and you could see all of the cameras. So you didn't just watch the show, uh, you know, in its hour-long weekly manifestation. You could watch it anytime thanks to um, uh, these always-on media technologies. Um, but not only that, you could participate in the bulletin boards and the chat rooms and kind of entertain yourself. So you'd you know, kind of do the work of making this show interesting. Because when you went and looked at those feeds, it was incredibly boring. It was like people who'd been deprived of any outside um, contact with the world, uh, you know, basically in solitary <laughs> without any media devices, you know, they were bored most of the time. And when you watched them, they were boring. Uh, and the challenge became like, you know, how do you entertain yourself? And some of that work of entertaining yourself became part of the interactive characteristic of, of the show. Um, so anyway, you can, you can kind of see some of the strains of what drew me to thinking about interactive media. I was interested in this equation of surveillance with participation and self-expression and the reliance on particular, uh, the, the affordances of interactive technology to make that equation. It was really interesting for me to watch um, uh, 
I'm remembering back to that first season of Big Brother in the U.S. when they brought the host in, Julie Chen, and uh, she was showing you the house and, um, you know, this show called Big Brother invoking, in a, you know, with a kind of wink and a nod, uh, Orwellian forms of surveillance it was giving you a tour through the house, and you could see they'd say th- she'd say things like, "Oh, and here are the bedposts, and they actually have microphones embedded in them." And you know, here's the bathroom, and there's there's actually a camera, you know, hidden in the ceiling here. And uh, you'd look at that and think, "But this is a really dystopian version of, um, you know, incredible privacy invasion." And yet, it's being framed as a kind of a fun, cool, participatory game show, uh, and and that. You know that very moment of thinking about Big Brother not as a you know authoritarian figure, but as a as a game show host, seemed like a really telling and interesting one to me. You know, how do you rehabilitate the figure of Big Brother? How do you equate the forms of surveillance that we might once have thought of as oppressive and uh, and um, invasive uh, as something that's cool and fun and participatory? Uh, and you know. I was writing about this reality TV moment, but it's pretty easy to see how that segues into the online economy that we've come to know. Um, I remember one of the early, in in this book, I also wrote about the early uh, uh, webcam celebrities. These are folks who, you know, put a camera in their house and um, you could tune in at any time and watch them as they live their life. Um, It it was, I I remember... um, I remember tuning into her. Uh, there was a particular webcam celebrity, and I and I checked in um, to her feed at one point, and she was watching Big Brother. Uh, and so this idea of you know somebody who you could watch watching a show about people being watched all the time felt um, kind of like an interesting comment on the times. But she had a, a comment because she'd post comments uh, to her video feed, and she said like something like watching Big Brother. I can't wait until everybody has their own reality show. Um, and to me, that was the kind of, you know, er form of, of, of uh, social media, right? You know, now this moment where, um, you know, not everybody, but many people who have access to um, uh, these platforms, in a sense, are figuring themselves as stars of their own shows, right? You know, this is what, in a sense, social media invites us to do. So, you know, I saw that moment in retrospect, now I, I saw it as an interesting moment then, as the kind of arrival of um, uh, you know what we what we would now call surveillance capitalism. Um, I've kind of kicked myself sometimes for for saying, and I wrote about this. You know, why didn't that term has become such a popular one? You know, why you know could I have coined that term? <laughs> um, and I realized that probably I couldn't have because I always I, I thought of surveillance uh, as kind of a um, uh, you know, a necessary part of capitalism. So that in a sense, it's a kind of pleonism um, uh, to say surveillance capitalism. Capitalism is surveillance-based. Um, so the notion that somehow there are some forms of capitalism that are not, or surveillance, not surveillance, and then there are some that are, seems misguided to me. But certainly, you know, what's happened is the online economy has folded in logics of surveillance made possible by interactive interactive technologies in ways that are, have become, you know, really familiar and ubiquitous for us. Um, that moment was an interesting one to me because in retrospect, it looked like there was, you know, you could see um, those logics coming together. You could see how the needs of the uh, economy for increasingly 
copious forms of detailed data about consumers was coming together with a technology that made this um, relatively inexpensive and easy to do. Uh, I remember doing some market research pretty early on. Um, I, I was looking at the origins of market research, actually, and I was looking at some of the folks who founded the ratings industry in, in the U.S. And, um, you know, these are the folks that eventually became uh, the, like, the Roper system and the Nielsen system. Um, but one of the early pioneers uh, who went on to a career in, in polling, um, I, I remember him trying to figure out how can you get detailed information about the things that consumers are doing? In particular, he was, you know, like what bundles of products are they buying? Uh, and he came up with a plan that actually won him a prize from Harvard. Uh, and it was, um, it was to pick up people's trash. And so they'd identify homes where they wanted to know what people were buying. And they'd say, it will give you free you know, trash uh, collection. And then they just take all their trash to these big warehouses and spread it out. Uh, and what made this possible, of course, was packaging. Before packaging, this would have been more difficult. But, you know, marketing had already developed packaging. Now it wanted to do research. You could pull out all the packages. But it was so much work. There's so much labor, you know, figuring out all of these details. Imagine how intensive that was. Um, now it's so much easier. You know, you've got your, you know, credit card or your, um, you know, bonus card or whatever. And uh, you've got your phone and you do a lot of consumption uh, online or many people do. All of that information is just automatically generated by the systems that we use uh, uh, to consume. But a- anyway, so... Um, you could see the desire for that amount of information, at least in some quarters. Um, and one of the other places that I looked historically, which has uh, gotten a, a lot more attention recently, is the origins of so-called scientific management, which was the use of detailed monitoring of workers in order to be able to rationalize their uh, labor process in order to make them more productive. Um, and, you know, we see shades of that invoked now when we hear about these technologies that monitor workers in the workplace uh, in detailed ways to see how, you know, how much time they're spending doing different functions online, how much time they spend away from their computer or at their computer or on particular tasks. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a history there that's continuous, but the technology allows in some ways for uh, a quite dramatic leap in capability, which in turn enables some quite significant shifts in the economy. So that that's a kind of, sorry, rather long-winded background, but um, hopefully what it stages is the connection between my interest in um, uh, the media, its connection to automation, um, and the way that gets folded into political economic logics, uh, which a lot of my work subsequently has been about. So I then wrote a book called uh, I Spy that looked at the implementation of interactive technologies in a range of different areas, not just you know consumption and marketing, but um, in politics and law enforcement. Uh, and then I looked at, and then I wrote a book called InfoGlut that looks at um, um, what are the kind of sense-making practices that emerge when you create these huge amounts of information and you try to use those to rationalize these different areas. Um, uh, what does it do to uh, uh, what knowledge means and what sense-making means? And InfoGlut was kind of pushing in that direction. And then automated media is kind of asking what kind of subjects <laughs> are associated with, with these processes. So I kind of, you know, track a progression through those different books. Um, so that's, yeah, that's my background. Um, okay. Yeah, great. 
Um, so to start up discussion of this book, can you tell us just what is automated media? Um, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious reading the book that you mean more than just merely automated news curate, um, curation or social media. So can you explain this term and give us a sense of the range of things that are encompassed in it? Yes, I'll do my best. I mean, as is often the case with, you know, the fundamental terms in any um, discussion, they're often the hardest to define. Um, but, you know, what what I mean to invoke when I think about automation, which is, you know, in, in some common sense uh, meaning, just refers to processes that um, take place with minimal human intervention and, you know, make can be started by humans and then kind of continue on their own. Um, uh, I, I'm, what I'm really interested in the way in, in which logics of automation connect with one, one another. And so one of the things that I've spent some time trying to develop is, is this notion of cascading logics of automation. Uh, and that's the way in uh, you know, kind of the, the claim there is that once you start certain types of automated processes, other automated processes become, in a sense, necessary to support that. So um, if you're able to create an automated system that collects a lot of information, all of a sudden you've got more information than you know what to do with. So you need some type of process to, to make sense of that information. So an automated information collection process, you know, would... Um, in certain contexts require then an automated um, you know sense making or sorting uh, system to or organizing some some way of making sense of that data um, and then once you've got automated systems for making sense of information it seems um, you know why not have them actually generate outcomes so that they can uh, you know um, uh, respond in some ways to what it is that they've divined from all of this information. So, um, you know, not just sorting the information, but then making decisions based on that information or recommendations or generating outcomes based on that information. So I'm interested in these kind of interlocking logics uh, of automation. I mean, one of the things that I've, I've discovered um, since in conversations with people is that's not always a linear progression. It's, it's not always that it starts with one form of automation and goes to the others. Uh, I, I, I tended to think of it that way, but I, probably it's better to think of them as interlocking processes. Um, I was talking to some researchers who were um, uh, thinking about um, AI processes and, and uh, the, how the development of certain forms of um, uh, automated vision actually um, shifted, or actually this was, I think, automated text analysis, shifted from models that were semantic-based, based on meaning, um, to uh, me- models that were just based on using large amounts of data and generating, you know, kind of predictions uh, based on those data, in part because folks who had the capability for large-scale data processing were looking for approaches that would use up all of that Um, processing power. And so the idea of saying, well, you know, if we want to do text analysis, um, uh, uh, maybe, maybe we can just do correlational, uh, uh, correlational forms of um, analyzing the text, uh, or making sense, you know, trying to figure out what this, uh, what comes next in the text. Um, uh, And we've got a lot of processing power. So let's use a, you know, data rich 
uh, approach to that. But anyway, so I'm, I'm interested in this kind of interlocking, sometimes cascading processes of automation. Uh, when it comes to media, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I've quite expansive conception of, of media. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in those kind of cultural techniques approaches or medium theoretical approaches to media, which tend to designate a quite broad way of thinking about the impact um, that media has on social relations. So um, a thinker who uh, somebody uh, whose work influences me um, is John Durham Peters, who writes about logistical media. And, and he thinks about things like um, bells and clock towers uh, uh, and how those might be thought of as media technologies. And, and what he means by those are technologies that arrange people and property and things into time and space. He writes about calendars and watches. Um, and, you know, those give us information. The standard definition of, of media is, you know, uh, or the standard way we think about it is um, something that mediates uh, between a sender and a receiver of, of a message. Uh, and the mass media era has tended to make us think about particular industries, you know, like the news industry and newspapers and the film industry and movies and um, uh, the music industry and so on. Um, but I, I like that notion of media as, as tech, you know, in a sense, almost anything could be thought of as a medium to the extent that we look at it through a particular lens. And that lens is the way it communicates something to us uh, about social relations and uh, arrangements uh, of uh, um, ourselves in relations to others in relations to things in the world. Um, I, I like I like Marshall McLuhan's, you know, I'm, I, I mean, I don't want to go too far in that direction, but I, I'm interested in the McLuhan definition of... Um, uh, he thinks of a medium as any technology um, uh, that influences the change of scale or pace or pattern that it introduces into human affairs. So for him, electric light is a medium, um, not because it conveys um, any particular content, but because it changes the scale or pace of pattern. Once you have electric light, you can see things that you couldn't see at night. That means you can do things. You have information that you didn't have. That means that you can, um, you know, have 24-hour shifts of labor. <laughs> you can that changes uh, how the industrial production works. You can illuminate things uh, uh, at night. Um, so uh, I'm I'm interested in thinking about media technologies in a, in a way recursively against the background of that definition of media, which is how is it they change the pace or scale. Um, uh, or pattern of social relations, uh, or how do they arrange people and things in time and space? Um, those, uh, so that's that's quite an expansive definition. Um, but media yeah. theorists tend to be, I don't know, somewhat um, uh, these days, where it seems like everything is is mediated in some way, right? Like that definition kind of fits this hyper mediated world that we live in. Great. Yeah. Yeah, well, most of this book, it's providing a framework to examine uh, biases of automated media that often get overlooked. And I mean, you clarify early on that by bias, you don't mean the familiar questions of whether algorithms have biased decision making, but rather that, uh, quote, the choice to implement automation within the existing socioeconomic context carries with it a set of built-in tendencies that have important societal consequences, end quote. 
You talk about many interrelated biases throughout, but you highlight three in particular, preemption, operationalism, and environmentality. Could you give us a quick overview of each of these three biases, and then we'll, we'll look at some more specific scenarios in which they're manifest? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I think the question of bias in automated systems in the way we tend to use it most commonly is really important. So the notion that, for example, facial recognition technology is biased um, in ways that make it less likely to uh, accurately identify people with darker skin tones. Um, I think that's a really important uh, concern and, and um, the way in which automated systems that may make different types of decisions, for example, you know, which resumes to let through to the next stage of the process, um, the ways in which those incorporate biases uh, on the basis of familiar categories uh, of historical bias, um, race, gender, class, sexuality, etc. I think those are super important to consider. And a lot of people have done a lot of work looking at that. Um, so, you know, in in this book, I was thinking, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to reproduce that work. Too many people have done such good work on it. Um, I'm, I'm interested in this notion, and it really comes out of the Canadian media theorist Harold Innes, who was who writes about what he calls the bias of communication, and this gets to kind of a more medium theory approach, kind of that more McLuhan style, where um, the question is how do particular media, um, what 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 tendencies are they biased towards? Uh, and you know the example that he gives, and he's thinking about the history of empire. He's, he's a Canadian writing, and you know that uh, um, alongside the power of. Uh, he's Canadian next to the U.S., so he's thinking about empire a lot, um, and uh, and he's interested in, in historically how different forms of media were used for social control, and uh, and you know he he looks historically at um, what he calls you know heavy media that that endure over time, and he and he talks about those as well. They have a tendency to um, privilege control over time, right? So stone tablets and um, uh, you know, sculptures and temples and so on. Um, whereas lighter media like papyrus, uh, media that can be traveled, that can travel re- relatively rapidly, but may less be less durable, contributes to kind of control and communication over space. Stone tablets are hard to carry, papyrus less so. Um, and so when he's thinking about how empires operate, you know, which ones try to fix and control time, which ones try to uh, control space. And, and that's not to say that it has to be all one or the other. But I was interested that choice of a medium then determines its affordances. And so I was kind of, I was thinking about, you know, what happens when you choose to rely on automated systems um, uh, of the type that, you know, I spent some time thinking about in the book. And I tried to come up with what I think some of those tendencies are. Uh, and those are more inductively read off of you know, what I see happening in the use of the technology, whether or not they're kind of inherent to particular technologies is a question I'm probably less um, equipped to answer. I I, I tend to approach those questions by saying it's very hard to 
um, abstract the technology from the social relations in which it's embedded. So you, you probably have to ask that, you know, not, you probably have to bracket that notion of inherent <laughs> and, and look more at, at specific um, historical mm -hmm. moments. Uh, but um, I came up with these biases because they seem to fit with the logic of large-scale data accumulation and processing, which we talked about in terms of cascading automation. And so just to give some examples, when I, when I talk about preemption, um, I was thinking about the ways in which um, uh, logics of large-scale, uh, sorry, predictive analytics based on large-scale data um, are used in a sense to preempt outcomes. And what I mean by that is if you think about um, things like predictive policing, uh, which is uh, meant to be kind of an enhanced data-driven form of policing where um, computers process large amounts of data in order to be able to predict to police officers where to send patrols or, uh, and presumably to reduce crime. But interestingly, the, the, the kind of portrayal of how this works often invokes not, not so much the logic of prevention, which I think of as having a kind of cause and effect logic to it, but a preemption, which means kind of stopping it in its tracks as it happens. So, you know, I, I remember looking at some of the early news coverage of PredPol, which was a predictive policing program used in, in the U.S. and derived from models from, I think, both gang activity and earthquake activity. They brought some mathematicians together and um, some folks who were studying gangs and earthquakes, and they developed this model to predict uh, where crime was more likely to happen in certain parts of uh, Southern California. Um, and, uh, and I remember some of the videos, you know, they'd show, well, here's some officers showed up just as people were breaking into a house or just as they're breaking into the car. And it was, a, it, it was an interesting moment. They had to kind of show that it happened that the preemption happened just as it was taking place, right? Because if they showed up so early that, um, you know, whoever the perpetrators were said, oh, please, let's go somewhere else, um, you wouldn't be able to capture that moment of preemption. Uh, and if they, they came too late, you know, it would be too late. Um, so they had to kind of arrive just in the nick of time. And it, that's, that's familiar kind of minority report logic, right? You know, if you remember that opening of that movie where um, it, it's like they've got to come right when he's about, the crime is about to be committed. It's a, it's a you know, future crime of murder. Um, but if they, you know, arrive too early, they can't prove it's going to happen. If they arrive too late, <laughs> it's not effective. Um, mm -hmm. So they have to arrive and just prove like he was so close to committing the crime that you could kind of assume he was going to do it. But, uh, but you know, that logic of preemption is, it, it has a kind of, it has a weird temporality to it. It's, it's um, you've got to be certain enough of the future to act upon it in the present in order to stop that future from happening. And that's a, that's a very weird temporal logic, right? You have to be so certain that it's going to happen in order to not make it happen. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about a number of things when I was thinking about preemption. One of them was um, the U.S. government's use of so-called signature strikes, um, drone strikes, right? Uh, and, you know, I, I don't want to trivialize what was happening there by comparing it. Well, I mean, policing is also a really serious activity. But it, the U.S. was killing people based on data profiles. So they weren't killing people who they were catching in the act. Here, preemption was kind of being stretched out a little bit. They were capturing people who fit 
the profile that they had created. So some informational profile of what it means to be an insurgent. And they were taking them out while, you know, they were killing them while they were doing things that were non-war related. So, you know, driving in a car somewhere, maybe just to visit somebody. Once they found them, if they claimed that the data showed that they were an insurgent, even if they didn't know who they were, um, that would could serve as the basis for a strike. And th- that's a kind of preemptive logic that's extended over time, right? It takes that logic of, well, if we know it's going to happen, we can act upon it now, even if it's not in the nick of time. And that's it's quite an interesting, alarming question, right? You know, like, how far in the future are you willing to predict in order to act in the present? Um, and that's, I mean, that's an ongoing struggle in a lot of uh, scenarios. But when it comes to things like killing people for being insurgents, it takes on a, a, um, a, a valence which is, you know, potentially self-fulfilling, right? If you go around um, killing people who are not engaged in active forms of warfare, you may actually contribute to the forms of resistance that you imagine that you are um, diminishing. And then you have to do more and more preemption. Uh, and you have a, um, a kind of cycle of violence. Um, but preemption, and I'm going to kind of switch from, you know, really quite tragic or violent example in in, in some ways to something that looks a lot more trivial, but um, all of the ways in which uh, our behaviors are uh, predicted and acted upon in a variety of contexts based on detailed amounts of information that can be gathered from us, so so so-called signatures, are becoming increasingly familiar, right? You know, like, um, uh, think about recommender systems, you know, what, uh, or autoplay systems, what we're going to play for you the song you want to hear before you know it. We're going to, um, you know, uh, Amazon, one of the things, one of those examples that really caught my attention was this kind of predictive delivery system that Amazon had, which, you know, they patented the system that would predict what you want before you know you want it. And it would appear on your doorstep and presumably you'd open the door and without having known that you wanted it, you'd suddenly realize that you wanted the thing that was there. Um, so, so yeah. uh, and this gets to something that, you know, we're going to talk about it a little bit later on, which is um, the role of desire. But that, that had, that's a really interesting logic, right? You know, how do you, how do you know that that is what you would have wanted, you know, when um, the recognition only happens at that moment when you realize that now that it's there, you want it. Um, but it, the, the, the goal is to kind of, I, I, I've, I call that uh, um, umbilicular commerce, right? You know, this, this kind of fantasy of um, a pre-subjective state where all of your needs are fulfilled before you have to articulate them. And um, that, that's a kind of, I, I mean, taken to its limit, that, that model of data-driven prediction, I mean, has, has a oddly quiescent feel to it, right? Like if you know all the risks that are going to take place and all the opportunities that are going to take place and you can, um, you know, address them all at once immediately so that in a sense they never happen, um, you've, you've kind of undone I don't, the progress of temporality, right? You've done something very strange. Um, but of course that, that is, I think, one of the impossible fantasies of this data-driven world, you know, um, think about how risks are, you know, the, the, in, the proliferation of possible risks that can be anticipated through um, 
datafication you know how can we uh, and and i don't want to minimize the impulse right like uh, there are many things in the world that we don't want to happen and that, that are risky um and uh um and that if we could kind of prevent them would um make things better for us. Um, things like climate change, we spend some time modeling what's going to happen in the future in order to avoid uh, 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 an apocalyptic future. Um, I mean, it hasn't been working so far, but <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the goal. Um, but if you think about how our kind of sensitivity to risks and the possibility of measuring them uh, or predicting them based on increasingly detailed forms of data collection kind of envision a world that's, um, you know, kind of completely smoothed over so that all risks are eliminated in advance, you know, whether somebody's going to drop out or whether they will be a bad employee or you know, whether they're suited for this um, school or that school, like if all that can be predicted in advance or, you know, um, I don't know, medical conditions that happen down the road, if you can figure out from some combination of genetic information and, and um, environmental conditions, you know, can you intervene in advance to prevent those things from happening? Um, that the preemption is a very weird, it has very weird logics to it because taken to its limit, it's, it kind of stops everything. Um, and yet, you know, you can certainly see why there are certain things that we would want to stop at discrete moments in time. But anyway, what I mean by prevention, by preemption is, is I mean to juxtapose it to the to prevention and and you know so I have kind of specific definitions of both of those and prevention is a kind of cause effect analysis right um, you think that there are certain causes that can be identified that lead to um, an outcome that you want to avoid so you try to intervene at the level of causes uh, and uh, but that requires a kind of narrative mm-hmm. comprehension uh, and a causal explanation. It requires narratives and explanations, right? Um, Preemption in the way that I'm using it actually dispenses with those things, right? Like you you don't need to get into the argument over what the causes are. Um, What you need to do is just show that there's enough data to predict this is going to happen so that you can intervene. And you know, to illustrate that, one of the examples that I think of is what happens in the U.S., in the kind of historical periods from the 90s to the 2000s when dealing with things like youth crime in the inner city. And, you know, there was, <clears throat> there was a time when the, the government in the late 90s or in the 90s implemented these block grant programs to reduce inner city crime. And the, the idea was, well, you know, one of the causes is there are kids who don't have educational and recreational resources and will create these block grants that support um, inner city forms of, uh, you know, institutions and, and services that provide education and recreation. Um, and, you know, the goal was that that would reduce crime. But you see those block grants in the 2000s get taken away, and that money goes to data-driven, you know, basically data equipment for, for policing. So, you know, it's no longer how can we intervene at the level of the cause, but how can we use the data to try to predict where these crimes are going to happen and then engage in forms of intervention. And I suppose part of that might be some of these programs where they kind of profile, quote unquote, uh, um, you know, folks who they consider to be at risk and then find some ways of intervening. Although, you know, the, the, um, the way that's been described, at least in some of the accounts that have been widely publicized, like the Chicago heat list, is it's, it's actually 
it's, it's not intervening by trying to change the circumstances or the conditions uh, under which these individuals may be living, but um, just to warn them that they're being watched, right? This is Chicago heat list was, they just visited people who, based on data profiles that seemed to be gleaned from their social media networks, um, they just kind of showed up and said, you know, we think you're going to either be a perpetrator or a victim of crime in the near future, um, and we're watching. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't really intervene at the social level. So anyway, you see where I'm going with that. The difference between prevention is that you try to act on the cause in order to um, influence the outcomes, but the preemption is you just try to act on the outcomes as they happen in real time. Um, and preemptive logics are... Um, you know, in a way, I think they address a certain kind of um, anxiety or failure of narrative and causal explanations. We know that we're living in a moment now when um, there are certain breakdowns around the ability to uh, uh, create um, a compelling shared view of the world, right? The, you know, the kind of uh, the, the attack on expertise that's associated with uh, a whole series of of movements, including kind of conspiracy theory folks. I, you know, think about the all of the vaccine anti-vax stuff, right? You know, all of the you know all of the scientists who are saying take these vaccines are actually in the pay of big pharma, and it's a you know you can't trust the medical authorities. You've got to quote unquote do your own research. Uh, the do your own research mantra is a, is a kind of um, I don't know, symptom of a certain type of crisis of, uh, of um, expertise. Um, but, uh, and, you know, I, I think probably, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I haven't spent a lot of time on it, but, you know, thinking about the ways in which the information environment that we live in makes it harder to come uh, to, to come to a kind of agreement upon a shared narrative of what's happening, you know, probably somewhat easier in the mass media era when, you know, you had your dominant narrative and then maybe you had the um, oppositional narrative. Um, but now what you have is this kind of, you know, a different landscape of a kind of multiplication of narratives that are impossible to contain and, and um, hard to track down. And, you know, you can just go off in so many directions. In some ways, it makes sense that it's harder like dealing with that problem of saying, well, we're going to need to agree upon an explanation and a cause in order to intervene. In a way, you can see why that um, becomes difficult under contemporary media conditions uh, that have been the subject of much concern. Um, and then in a sense, preemption just kind of cuts that Gordian knot. It says, well, you know, um, we've got the data that can predict that this is going to happen. We don't need to know what the causes are, but we know with some degree of certainty it's going to happen. So let's act on it. So you know, we can dispense with that whole process of correlation. Uh, sorry, that, uh, dispense with that whole process of causation and displace it with some logic of, of correlation. Um, so sorry, that's a rather long-winded explanation of, of preemption. Um, I think I can do the other in short, shorter order because... Um, I think they're all kind of connected. Um, yeah. Environmentality, uh, I, what I mean by that is is the way in which um, uh, the goal is to model as much of the environment as possible or the world as possible in order to be able to preempt, right? So um, I, what got me interested in this 
notion of environmentality originally was, um, and, and I should be quite clear here, that term sometimes invokes confusion with um, uh, kind of ecological forms of environmentalism. And it, that's not what it means here in this context. It's a term lifted from the work of Michel Foucault when he talks about forms of governance that take place through modulating the environment. And what he means by that is, he, the term he uses is the, the rules of the game. Um, but it's 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 probably much more familiar in kind of popularized terms when we think about so-called nudge, uh, the nudge forms of so-called libertarian paternalism. Like, don't tell people how to behave. Instead, change the you know their surroundings in order to nudge them to behave a particular way. If you don't want them, you know, if you want them to eat uh, healthier in the cafeteria, just move the healthy stuff you know to the front and the unhealthy stuff make it harder to reach right like you, th- then you're not kind of asking people to adopt a particular you know narrative explanation of the relationship between food and health or an ideological position with regard to um you know their own um relationship to food uh, but you're just you're just saying yeah we can just m- manipulate them by changing the environment um but but what originally caught my attention was or forms of representation that tried to capture the entire environment. So things like 360-degree cameras and virtual reality, we're, we're kind of moving into an era where media themselves are really interested in constructing, um, you know, entire in, environments, uh, dispensing of with um, what I call the frame, right, the, the limit on the information. Um, there's, there's, um, there's one example that I, I just find so... It's kind of interesting and compelling when it comes to this notion of, of framelessness, which in my mind is association, associated with environmentality. Um, but framelessness in the way I use it is, is um, kind of refers to there's, there's no actual limit on the amount of information um, that is notionally to be collected uh, or um, uh, who is going to be subject to information collection. Um, the goal as as the former, um, I think he was the chief information officer for the CIA. Um, I think it was uh, Gus Hunt um, said, you know, we want to collect everything and hold on to it forever. But, but that's like the mantra of, of, you know, pretty much every commercial organization that you can think of as well as the policing intelligence organizations. Um, and it's a, it's a, or at least that's the driver, right? You know, we have new sensors, new capabilities to collect new forms of information, but no limit. Right, um, but no limit means we want to collect everything. We want to collect everything in order to have a kind of totality of understanding of the environment in which people are operating, in order to be able to predict what they're going to do. That's uh, you know preemption, um, uh, or at least a preemption could take place then through modulating the environment. Right. So how can we change the environment in order to stop what we know is going to happen based on all the information that we've got about it? Um, but there was a, the example that I, I wanted to reference was there was a um, brochure for a tool called for a basically basically a camera called LifeLogger that would you'd wear it um, you know I can't remember like on your head or on your ear or something uh, and it would record everything that happened in your life and I just remember the marketing copy for that that said uh, did you know the average human only rep- I can't remember what the percentage was only remembers something like nine percent of everything that happens to them uh, in a day. Um, 
and they figure that as a kind of flaw, right? right? You're not collecting everything. Um, but with LifeLogger, you'll collect everything. So like your memory will be complete. But, it's, but memory, of course, is meant to be selective. That's its function. If memory were not selective, um, it'd be very hard to remember anything because we'd remember everything. Right? It's that, uh, um, but this would remember everything for you, right? Like it would collect everything. The trick is then how could you experience that? Um, you know, if you wanted to remember a day, it would take you a day, right? as the famous Borges parable. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but what it did was it connected to you biometrically and it, so it would measure your physiological response and then it would play back those moments for you that you seem to respond to. But, but what I was interested in there again, was that like kind of total information capture, um, the, uh, operationalism, um, uh, what I mean by operationalism is it, it's really, um, in a sense, juxtaposed to representationalism, right? So, um, uh, and it comes from uh, the work of uh, uh, the kind of experimental filmmaker Harun Faruqi and the artist Trevor Paglin. And Harun Faruqi spends some time looking at the images that he describes as images that machines use to communicate with one another. So um, they're, no, they're not meant to... to um, uh, communicate anything to humans in a referential or indexical way, but they're meant to just um, send one piece of information to another part of the machine that then can operate upon it. Um, and uh, operationalism uh, it struck me as an interesting concept uh, because it it gets to this notion of the ways in which machinic or automated operations kind of dispense with the logic of representation, right? So um, if you think about preemption, there's a logic of, of representation in, uh, in trying to explain, um, you know, uh, trying to provide a causal explanation. I'm going to provide you a representation of the world. This is how it works. Um, uh, and, you know, then you can try to map my explanation onto the world and, and act on it. Whereas operationalism moves more in the direction of actually you don't have to represent things. You just act upon the information that, that you get. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in the fate of language under our current conditions, because uh, in my mind, it's tied up with the figure of the subject. But um, what's really interesting to me about language is the gap between uh, um, uh, uh, representations and what they represent, right? Um, the uh, the whole point of language, in some sense, its whole usefulness is that it's um, inadequate. To, <laughs> to uh, I don't know if inadequate is the right word, you know, but but it doesn't coincide completely with what it represents. There's a kind of space there, and that space is the space of interpretation, judgment. It might be the space of politics. I, I argue that it is um, there. Uh, uh, but machines don't have that space, right? Uh, there's no, there's no. If you think about um, so-called machine language, which in some ways, you know, I'd argue maybe is, isn't actually a language in the way that I'm using the term language. Um, there's no space between. There's no room for interpretation uh, uh, when a signal is sent um, uh, internal to a, a machinic or an automated system. It's not. It's not like, oh, you know, um, that signal could mean this or it could mean that and you know let's have an argument and have the machine make some type of judgment about it um the operation is machine language is a series of commands uh and those commands result in outcomes um and 
something very weird would happen if the machine started to try to interpret those. You know, like, what do you mean by this command? Like, what do you really want? I know you're, we have, we've all had that experience, right? Where, I don't know if you've ever, ever tried coding, right? You know, where like it goes wrong because the machine is so literal. You told it to do something and it does something completely wrong because, and it's your fault because the machine has no ability to interpret. It doesn't know what you want. It just knows the commands that you put in. Um, but it was something very interesting what happened, right? This is maybe this is the moment of, you know, I don't believe in, you know, general artificial intelligence or something like that, unless you reach some conditions where, um, you know, basically these machines are no longer really machines. But, you know, imagine that maybe that's a moment of general artificial intelligence, right? When the, when the machine would kind of try to figure out what you want, right? try to understand your desire instead of just following the commands. But anyway, operationalism is that, is that um, when, the, when images, and, you know, images in, in a sense almost disappear. Trevor Paglin goes back and tries to re-engineer Harun Faruqi's work, asks that question, where can I look at these machines to see, and, and these are machines like, um, oh, I can't remember, there were things like welding machines that looked for, um, you know, patterns that indicated where a, a seam was. Uh, and, you know, the mach- there would be a kind of representation that would help, that would be part of the machine's operation of figuring out where, where to do the welds or something. But Paglin goes back and he looks at um, more recent machines and he, and he says, well, actually that moment where the image is generated that a human can kind of look at no longer exists because the images are too complicated, right? You know, the, the, um, so the, the, the images kind of disappeared. But, you know, you could think of the operational image as, um, you know, your data double, uh, the, the profile of you that's created in a machine that's then acted upon that you don't see. So things that happen, whether your resume gets forwarded, whether you get selected for this or that interview, whether or not you're eligible for this and that um, process, um, those all take place based on images that you don't see, right, of, often. Um, uh, and often they're too complex. So how does, you know, how does Netflix know what you want to watch next? Right? Somewhere it has a pattern that feeds in what the next um, recommendation is going to be. But it's, it's not something, it's just part of an operation. It's, it's not something where, um, you know, you get to see uh, what's happening. And I, I'm, I'm interested in that process of... Uh, um, where decisions become operational, kind of uh, uh, where, the, where the representations that um, would have been the subject of kind of debate and interpretation just disappear so that the operation can take place seamlessly in ways that look like it's um, you know, somehow objective or machinic. Um, so I guess the bigger picture argument I'm making is when you choose to use automated systems to do many of these things, um, you... Uh, the claim I'm making is you find yourself bringing on the biases towards these types of outcomes, right? So, you know, if, if you choose, um, I don't know, you choose to automate, I don't know, like a, a marking system for papers or something, something that folks in the academic world, you know, could you automate mark, you know, grading papers or something? Um, the machine will no longer be able to understand what that paper is about. You've got to find, right? Like th- you've got to find some type of, um, you know, model or image that it uses to make decisions. Uh, but but interpretation and understanding kind of get written off uh, when you do that. Um, and you know, I suspect that's going to lead to outcomes that are undesirable. But um, but certainly. Uh, 
uh, probably people would be quite happy if you could develop an automated marking system. <laughs> um, but, uh, but something happens, right? Like there's a bias there. Like it's no longer about the content. It's no longer about the narrative. It's about um, being able to collect enough information to be able to make a decision uh, based on, a, on some type of an image that's created of this paper that correlates with some type of a template or, you know, whatever is used for marking. Um, uh, uh, that will, and, you know, the more data you have, you know, the better it will be trained. But the thing will never understand what the paper is about. That, that part will disappear. And that, that's kind of the element of operationalism that's interesting to me. Um, Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that covered a, a lot of scenarios where you see these these biases manifest. Um, uh, another one that I found really interesting was epistemology, and you've kind of already touched on on some of this already, like particularly when talking about preemption, um, with how prediction is becoming um, just so much more important. Um, so, I found your um, yeah, your argument about how our epistemological outlook is changing, uh, really interesting. So like where since the Enlightenment explanation was considered to be vitally important to knowledge, um, automation is in some ways it's returning us to a pre-Enlightenment epistemology of reliance on an authority figure. Can you talk about what these new authority figures are and perhaps how this gives rise to conspiracy theories? Yeah, I, I mean, um, the, 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 the impulse in the Enlightenment, which is, um, you know, has certainly undergone a, a kind of um, revision in people's evaluation of it. Um, I, I mean, I, I, you know, my relationship to thinking about the... Um, developments that flow from the Enlightenment are uh, we probably want to think twice about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, there's a lot of bathwater there. Um, And, uh, you know, some of the accusations that are made about the Enlightenment, that it's, you know, the mode of rationality um, uh, that it enlists was used for the purposes of, you know, reinforcing patriarchy and white supremacism and so on. You know, those things are historically accurate um, but the question of whether or not um, then the whole, uh, you know, apparatus of um, the forms of uh, uh, rationality and universalism uh, then have to be completely dismantled, that seems like a separate question to me. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the impulses of the Enlightenment, of course, was that um, uh, explanation was important because of the way that it was construed or configured uh, in terms of universal capacities um, to reason uh, and comprehend, you know, it had a certain impulse that lends itself to at least some of the ways that we think about democracy, right? You know, if, um, if there are forms of knowledge that are just purely incomprehensible to most people, then the custodians of those knowledge um, uh, you know, need to exercise a kind of dictatorial power over those who, who do not understand. Um, but uh, if, if um, you know, 
forms of knowledge and reason and explanation are used universally available, then then power can be asked to be held account, right? Uh, it's not enough that you say this is um, what has to happen. You have to explain why. And you know the assumption is that there's um, there's a kind of universally distributed capability to understand that explanation. Uh, and if there's not, it's not the fault of the listeners. It's the fault of the explanation. It doesn't work. Um, so. Uh, one of the th- interesting things that happens, I think, with large-scale forms of data collection and data mining that are associated with forms of automation that we've been discussing is that actually the sense-making processes become in- inexplicable uh, and um, in some cases. And it's interesting to talk to people who work in data science around this, you know, when, when they, when they get to things like neural nets, you know, and, you, and they're just like, Oh, it's, you know, it's just, it's not explainable. Um, uh, and, and, um, the only way to make those, the, the, those are really like data heavy systems. You've got to have lots of training data to make them work. Um, so you, you have to have both access to the data and to the processing power to develop forms of knowledge, which then become unexplainable. Uh, and, and that, that's, um, that's in a, some sense, a retreat from the claims of, uh, that we're familiar with from a kind of enlightenment political accountability that, you know, you should be able to provide an account. What if you can't, you know, what if all you can provide is, um, your claim that the evidence suggests that this is the right thing to do, but we don't have the capability to evaluate the evidence because the evidence is too massive. You know, it's beyond human capabilities of, of making sense of, um, uh, and that we've got these machines that, you know, give us actionable information, which is inexplicable, right? In, in one sense, there are historical precedents for that, right? Um, you know, certainly forms of, you know, pre-enlightenment tradition are both um, actionable and inexplicable. Like we're going to act upon this, you know, proclamation because it comes from the monarch who comes from God or something, right? Like, you don't need an explanation. Um, and, you know, something interesting happens when you're able to say, well, you know, look, I, I can't provide you an account of why this decision is made, but I can tell you that the system is reliable enough um, that uh, that this is the right um, outcome. I, I remember I, I had a friend a while back who was um, was a who was friends with somebody who worked in the mining industry in Australia. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how true the story is, but I believe him. And, and, but really what I like is the point, which is this, um, and I don't know which mining company it was, but they use, um, you know, really data heavy forms of automated prediction in order to figure out where the best place to build the next, you know, um, very expensive mine would be. And a recommendation was given by these, um, systems with their calculations and the the person responsible for making the decision actually um, decided against the recommendation of the system uh, but was then you know and, and made a decision that turned out to be not a good one uh, and then the question was well you know like is this person liable for um, not going with the system that um, uh, was meant to be the expert system in this case you know the human expert versus the machine expert um, and, the, and uh, that's a kind of interesting conundrum, you know, when we get to the point where these systems are making recommendations that we don't understand, but they may not accord with those of human experts. Um, you know, where does the authority lie? Um, 
Yeah, in 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 terms of the figure of of uh, of conspiracy theory, I, I mean, I'm 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 really interested in the kind of interactive character. I mean, I, you know, clearly one of the things that happens when you talk about, uh, uh, um, I, I guess if you talk about the machinic versus the human expert, you know, one of the things that's happened is um, the machinic expert is is figured as the one that's going to trump the human expert because it's got access to much more knowledge and uh, and it's got much higher processing power. So, you know, that might uh, contribute to the ongoing denigration of expertise that's kind of characteristic of, of um, you know, forms of contemporary skepticism. Um, and again, it's a really interesting history, right? Because um, we know, you know, if the moment of the I don't know, 70s and 80s <laughs> was one moment of, of showing the ways in which dominant forms of knowledge are, you know, entwined with power. Uh, and the moment of, of you know, large scale public uh, uh, publicized events like the Pentagon Papers and, um, uh, you know, highlighted for us the ways in which authorities were lying to us and the dominant version of what was, you know, going on in the world was, uh, was a contrivance of power. Um, uh, there's certainly a kind of a <clears throat> political impulse there to challenge the relationship between, <clears throat> between knowledge and a power, authority and a power. Uh, but of course, what we've seen recently <clears throat> is the wholesale rejection of uh, expertise as being fully reducible to power, right? So I think it's one thing to claim that knowledge and power are intertwined. It's another to say there is no knowledge, it's just power. Uh, and um, one of the things that, which we talked about earlier, sorry, I've spoken so much, I'm <clears throat> a little bit hoarse. But um, one of the things we spoke about earlier is uh, in, a, in a kind of multi-channel um, information-saturated environment, where there's so many rival accounts that you know any form of expertise can be countered by uh, a, a whole series of counterclaims with a whole litany of evidence. Um, that certainly contributes to a, a kind of dismantling of, uh, of established forms of expertise and uh, making it harder to uh, for those who claim expertise to leverage those claims. Um, uh, but at the same time, so so if you have you have on the one hand a form of power which is um, yeah, sorry a form of authority in the figure of the machinic decision which is opaque, which is illegible, which is unaccountable, um, I think that ver- that that form of authority, uh, you know, it's it's kind of dispensed with what was meant to hold power accountable, which was some type of uh, explanation, right? Um, if power, or, or if, you know, kind of symbolic power operates that way, um, uh, then claims, um, it seems to leverage the power of claims to be made without really explanations <laughs> or with explanations that um, really aren't explanations at all, right? You know, things like, I don't know, if you look at QAnon, it doesn't really explain anything. <laughs> it provides narratives that, that um, after the fact, adjust to reality, but, but don't, don't really do a good job of explaining reality. Um, uh, but the other thing that it does, which is, which gets back to what we started out talking about, is the promise of, in a sense, of participation. Right. Um, the interesting thing about contemporary conspiracy theories like QAnon, 
I think, is that in some sense, they're much less narrative, right? It's like, QAnon's not a book, like, I, you know, I don't know, um, other conspiracy theory texts that have become canonical that we would think about. Uh, you can kind of go somewhere and download it, but it really, it's just a series of so-called drops, right? Um, or crumbs uh, that, um, that the theorists kind of weave together into their own narratives. So it, it Again, it's kind of offloading the work of generating the, uh, you know, affective attachment onto the uh, folks who are subject to this conspiracy theory. It's a kind of participatory um, form of, uh, of um, counter-narrative. But it's not really a counter-narrative. I don't think that's the right word. I don't think narratives function. It's not like there's a dominant narrative that it's that it provides a counter-dominant narrative to. It's 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 um, much more along the lines of contemporary forms of um, propaganda, right? Which is not not to um, mobilize a dominant narrative, but to make it impossible to mobilize any counter-narrative by sowing disagreement and confusion and and so on. Um, yeah. I mean, a bunch of interesting examples. The, the Trump administration was a pretty good example of that. But also prior to that, the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. You know, when you're when you're charged with something, provide a welter of uh, of accounts that just make it impossible to come up with a coherent uh, counter narrative. Right. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things you talk about it, um, that you raise in automation is that it reconfigures a classical liberal assumption that conflict fundamentally stems from misrecognition and misunderstanding, and that therefore conflict can be addressed by smoothing out problems in the medium. Can you draw out how you see this contemporary automation employing the same assumption in its logic and what problems you might see with this understanding? Yeah, I mean, the... the um, the kind of origins of a, of a kind of liberal tradition in communication theory are very much based on um, this kind of this uh, I don't know, Lockean conception of, of how communication works, right? And, you know, for Locke, with his priority of the individual, um, meaning uh, attends to the specific individual, right? Like I make my meaning and then language comes along and I try to convey it to you. And it's a very weird way to think about how meaning works. I, th I think these days we're probably more attuned to the notion that um, the kind of meanings that we can make are actually dependent upon the shared cultural resources that we have, including language, um, to even be able to think or express ourselves in particular ways. But that, that version of um, my thought is primary, kind of prelinguistic, and then language becomes a tool for me to share it. Um, it it's it, then the blame it, it really kind of comes to fall on language, right? Like oh, it's it's just not an accurate. It's not it. It's it's not a reliable tool for me to um, accurately communicate my thought directly to you. And what's going to happen instead is because language is clumsy, it's there's going to be a misunderstanding, and then that misunderstanding will be the basis of our conflict. Uh, and, you know, if we could only understand each other clearly, you know, the, our conflict might be overcome. Um, and, you know, subtending that, I think, is, is also a, a deeper um, assumption that, for example, um, social systems that are, in a sense, perhaps automatic, automatic in their own ways, um, 
can uh, can arrange and mediate things optimally to resolve conflict, like the market, for example, um, would be the optimal allocation of resources if it was a perfectly functioning market. So there's a system that's kind of independent notionally, I know it's not, right, but but from politics that can kind of arrange everything in the, in the optimal way. I think those two versions kind of reinforce each other. They're individual actors, they come together in the market, the market will arbitrate. Um, and that kind of dispenses with all these questions of power and politics <laughs> um, it, it, that are very familiar with critiques of, of the so-called free market. You know, we know there's no such thing as a perfectly free market or perfect information. Those are all all fictions. Um, but that version of language, that uh, that Lockean version, that's being rehabilitated by figures like Elon Musk, you know, who's working on systems and, and, and um, Mark Zuckerberg, these tech folks who seemingly have kind of absorbed this particular version, perhaps unsurprisingly, of, you know, of what the sovereign individual is. You know, like my thoughts are first and then the problem is language. But what if we created a platform or technology that would allow us to bypass language completely? And that would be kind of an operational move, right? Uh, you know, we don't need representation. We don't need language which has its flaws and deficiencies and incompletenesses and inadequacies. Um, Elon Musk is working on this system uh, that, uh, you know, would inject basically hundreds of thousands of um, tiny wires into your brain and that would allow you then uh, down the road. His first thing is to use it to be able to, to control interfaces, right? You know, could you type with your brain instead of your hands? Um, can you move things with your brain? And he's shown that that's actually possible to do. But the next move is to carry that over to thoughts, right? You know, what if my thought could be perfectly implanted in, into you? Um, you know, then we wouldn't even have to have this conversation, right? You just just plug plug me in and plug mm-hmm. you in, and you know, we do a data dump or something. Um, uh, you know, it, it's it's a kind of it seems insane to me, right? But but it, it's it's actually a, a model of thinking that seems to characterize their understanding of how. Um, uh, communication works that you know like, that somehow he has a thought full blown independent of language language becomes an imperfect vehicle for it but it can be conveyed directly through the wires um uh so um you know i i suppose the fantasy there i i think it recapitulates that kind of critique of language that uh, uh, is a classical liberal critique. You know, it's the misunderstandings could be overcome if we could communicate this way but of course I mean, Elon Musk is an interesting example <laughs> in some ways because um, what happens in society is is that there, are, you know, are real um, differences of interest that characterize the way people are positioned in society. Those who have power over others and who uh, exist at extreme levels of inequality with respect to the political process and the social system, um, their interests may not just may not be harmonious. Uh, with others, right? You know, it's, it's the, the interests of um, of Jeff Bezos and the interests of his employees, they may not coincide. <laughs> you, you know, uh, th- there's there's the reality of social conflict, um, and uh, you know the the dramatic inequality of figures like Bezos and and Musk stage, you know, real serious conflicts. If, if you think about, I, I, I know, think about. Um, 
all those stories of the tech billionaires who are building their bunkers in New Zealand and in silos in the Midwest and so on, you know, their, their idea is, um, uh, you know, I, I, somewhere it's a kind of a nod to real social conflict um, rather than, you know, doing what they can to overcome whatever the real conflicts are. They just want to harden their, um, homes. <laughs> they're, they're imagining that they'll just, you know, things are going to collapse, um, probably in no small part because of the processes that they contribute to accelerating. Um, and, you know, when that happens, uh, then you'll really see the real underlying conflict will come to the surface. There'll be roving gangs of, of you know, former Bezos employees um, trying to breach the perimeter of the bunker uh, and you've got to have it really hardened and you've got to have all the defense systems that you need and the food and water or whatever stowed away when the apocalypse comes. But um, uh, anyway, the, the point is um, society is riven by real social conflicts um, and the notion that um, uh, somehow um, uh, you know, automated forms of uh, information processing could gloss over those, I think um, uh, overlooks the very fact that those systems are based on the huge inequalities that lie at the heart of the conflict within society. Who is it who has access to the data? Who is it who has access to the processing power? How are they using it in ways that actually... Um, completely contradict the interests of large portions of the population. Um, you know, the, the interest that these companies have in uh, securing themselves or uh, increasing their profits, um, uh, I don't think uh, necessarily cohere with uh, the interests of the rest of society. It's, it's not that there's an overall social whole that um, uh, is characterized by an underlying harmony and just enough information would reveal that harmony it's you know information accurately unearthed would i think reveal the the real structural conflict um and you know that's where politics comes into play and, and that's where i think these systems that attempt to bypass the vagaries of explanation uh, and the vagaries of representation are also seeking to uh gloss over um uh, the reality of social conflict that, you know, kind of hide that and the reality of the politics that we need to engage in in order to address it. No, you don't need politics. You just have enough information it will allocate the resources uh, um, uh, optimally. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm, I, I, I don't think that's how it's working. <laughs> sure, yeah. My next question is about framelessness and how you kind of use it as a point to start segueing into your psychoanalytic theory that you use. You've already talked a little bit about framelessness. At one point in the book, you describe it as, quote, the view from nowhere that corresponds to the attempt to monitor everything at the same time, all the time, end quote. And I mean, you've talked about a number of these examples. Uh, we also have the Internet of Things, smart cities, computer systems tracking all our moves. Um, uh, they're trying to operationalize our desire and so on. I know one of the examples you talk about in your book is a tech person who is trying to create a simulation world that corresponds one to one to the real world. So I guess um, in 
you kind of use this to start segueing into talking about the psychoanalytic gap. Um, can you talk a bit about framelessness and how you start, um, what, what problems that the psychoanalytic gap you use pose for framelessness? Um, I, you know, perhaps one way in is to think about the fantasy of, um, Augmented, augmented reality. And I'm, one of the examples that I use in the book is Kevin Kelly's description of so-called mirror world. And, and what he envisions is um, the reality itself becomes the next platform. And so what he means by that, from what I can understand, is that um, instead of going into a virtual world you know, via computer, you know, social media, um, the real world becomes overlaid with an informational level that allows us to interact with objects in ways that are already always already mediated by the platform. Um, so to make that work, he envisions a world in which um, everything has to be photographed and recorded all of the time, right? How else are you going to be able to superimpose on, um, I don't know, the street sign that I passed that customized directions to me as to where I'm going and somebody else will see a different version based on where they're going um, or a different piece of information um, or a different communication from a different person. We'll all live in a world where um, even if the physical infrastructure at one time looked the same, the informational infrastructure will have transformed it so that we all are basically inhabiting completely different worlds. Um, but to make that happen, he has it just like he just glosses over this idea. He just says, you know, basically there have to be, you know, miniature cameras everywhere recording everything all the time. Um, and I, I, I like that example because it, it highlights kind of the incoherence of of that very, um, you know, if you want to talk about one place in where the, which the gap appears, I think it would appear there because of course what would happen is. Um, the cameras themselves would then become part of the reality that they need to record, which means there would have to be cameras recording the cameras that were recording, right? And 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 what you find is that there's a there's a kind of impossibility of uh, of the of this kind of unified whole. There's always going to be some gap, something that's missing, right? Like the the cameras are not going to be able to record themselves recording. The, the reality, but they're, they're part of this reality that presumably is the augmented world that we're living in. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, in one sense, the gap is, is the kind of um, structural incompleteness of the fantasy of total data capture, right? You know, every time there's some problem with um, some datafied process, uh, the answer is always, you know, well, you know, maybe we need more data that'll help us get rid of uh, the bias or the inaccuracy um, or the, you know, failed prediction. Um, but that, that process of total information capture is in its sense, inco it's incoherent, right? Right. Like um, that there's no, it's not like the world is a, is a, um, <clears throat> finite space that uh, um, um, can be captured in its entirety. The, uh, um, there are always new dimensions um, that, you know, as soon as you invent a new sensor, you've invented a new dimension to be, to be captured. Uh, um, the, <clears throat> but the, the gap also, uh, you know, in psychoanalytic terms, um, you know, refers to the ways in which we're not purely self-contained individuals in the way that 
I was talking before about this kind of Lockean model of uh, you know the hermetic individual who comes up with a thought. Um, we're in some sense irrevocably open and incomplete. Our um, uh, our the very um, terms that we use to understand the world and make sense of it come from others and are used in ways that uh, are ungovernable by ourselves. This is why language is a frustration for many of these people, right? You know, you can't make it work. And one way you can't, reason you can't make it work is because um, uh, it's irreducible to you. It's not, it's not just yours. Um, But but the uh, the further point is in some way you are also not just yours, right? Like that's, that's the psychoanalytic point, right? You're non-self-identical with yourself. Um, and precisely because, um, you know, the version of subjectivity that you have is, is, is not hermetic. It's not, it's not something that's just closed down in you. Um, I, I, the one the example that I start the book with, I like it because I think it's an interesting psychoanalytic example. Is uh, Ray Kurzweil, the Google engineer who wants to, um, you know, in, in a very kind of Freudian move, wants to reconstruct his father who's dead um, through data about his father in order to create a chatbot. Uh, so he wants to rebuild the father, but he wants to rebuild a version of it that will um, communicate with him, but. Uh, he wants to recreate his father in his totality, right? So his idea is that if he collects enough information, I'll have a kind of complete father. Uh, and the uh, and the interviewer asks him, well, um, you know, would talking to this chatbot be like talking to your father? And he answers and says, the chatbot, this, this version of my father would be more like my father than my father was. And, you know, I don't think Kurzweil meant it, but it's a kind of a beautiful psychoanalytic point in the sense that, you know, this self-contained, um, you know, perfected chatbot actually wouldn't be like his father at all, right? To say that it'd be more mm-hmm. like his father than his father was is to say that it would be non-identical with his father, right? Um, and that's correct. I, I think that's that's true in a sense of all of our data profiles. All of those things, you know, when when the marketer says, we know you better than you know yourself, that means that what they know is better than you. It's non-identical. You know, it's, it'll be more like, sorry, not better. It's more like you than you yourself are. But that's the point, right? Like you yourself are not, <laughs> you're not more than, you know, you're kind of uh, incomplete and, um, and uh, non-self-identical. And the goal of all these processes is to make a version of you that is complete and self-identical. And in that sense, it actually misses what it is to be a subject. Um, and I think the psychoanalytic perspective is really useful there. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, it, it's interesting doing work using some of this theory because it's, it, it's um, you know, they're very strong adherents to these approaches. But, um, you know, within the kind of theory mainstream uh, there are also very strong countercurrents, um, but but there's something quite compelling to me about that account of the subject against the background of the you know the kind of crazy things that I see uh, are being attempted by this data driven economy. Um, you know this fantasy of of complete data capture, this fantasy of complete specification. Um, I think the psychoanalytic conception of the subject is non self identical and and you know characterized by the fact that it is, in, in a sense, its own non-self-identicalness is a very useful rejoinder, a very useful explanation for why these processes will never work, despite the fact 
that uh, never is a big word, but you know, won't work as long as subjects, you know, exist. Um, uh, um, it's kind of a use. It, it's useful to be able to provide an account of of why these things that we know are wrong in some ways um, are wrong, uh, and to maybe point out the pathology of a world that nevertheless attempts to use them as the basis for decision-making processes and um, forms of social sorting uh, and the exercise of power. Yeah. Desire is another concept that comes up a fair amount. And you point out that it has a a somewhat dynamic relationship uh, with automation. On the one hand, the subject's desire is never something that can be pinned down, and thus it stands as an obstacle for automation. So that's like that's the gap that you're just talking about. Um, but on the other hand, precisely because it can never be pinned down, automation can incessantly find ever new ways of trying to pin it down. Mm. Can you talk a bit about the importance you see in this relation and what's at stake for individuals or consumers? Yeah, thank thank you. That's that's really nicely framed. Um, I mean, w- one of the things that I really like again about psycho and psychoanalytic approach is the distinction it makes between uh, the object of desire and the object cause of desire. Um, that split uh, it seems like a really useful and interesting one to me um, because it 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 certainly um, helps explain. Uh, some things that we're familiar with, you know, but processes of, uh, you know, from the, this very fundamental psychoanalytic insight that um, the object of desire doesn't uh, um, eclipse, it doesn't eclipse or uh, what's the word, uh, um, eradicate <laughs> or somehow um, uh, eliminate uh, the object cause. Uh, and we know that about how desire works, right? You know, uh, it, it operates in that register of, you know, you get what you think you want, and then you realize that that's not it. <laughs> and that's the way in which desire reproduces itself. Um, and, uh, you know, the object cause of desire in, in this kind of, you know, the Canaan inflected framework that I'm interested in is, um, it's a really interesting object, right? And I, I kind of, I'm interested in the way it's characterized as, as an object, but it's, it's a very, difficult object to um, to get a handle on um, but I, I think in important important ways uh, you know the, I suppose the ready psychoanalytic example is you know um, uh, comes from the the account the cons account of the difference between um, need demand and, and desire but it, you know if I were give give a kind of hackneyed explanation of it um, the difference between the need for food as you know the, the baby who cries for the for food and uh, the idea that somehow uh, you know food will um, provide the, 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 the need that's being addressed and then um, the forms of uh, of suckling for example that are associated with um, uh, the pacifier um, uh, you know that the, the form of suckling that actually is no longer articulated to a a biological need for food. It's, it's not that the baby is hungry. Um, what is it? You know, why does, if you've seen a, uh, uh, you know, young 
a baby with a pacifier, it, it can just keep going all the time. There's no, there's no particular limit. <laughs> there's no moment at which um, you know the the need has been met, uh, and 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 therefore you know you don't need to eat anymore. Like um, the uh, and the question is kind of what's the object? You know, if the object of the need is food, what's the object of uh, of the you know ongoing um, suckling of the pacifier. What's that? Uh, and that's that seems to be an interesting uh, question. Um, when it comes to thinking about the uh, um, the the kind of you know ongoing dialectic of desire, I you know what's taking place. I, I, right here's clearly what's what's happening is. Uh, when it comes to things like datafication, the object is never it, right? Like you get more data, you still haven't gotten it all. You need some more data. <laughs> um, the, you know, so that notion that somehow the more data is the object of your desire is not getting us to the object cause of desire, right? Uh, and um, so uh, there will never be enough data. It will never... Um, there's no, and this is in a sense also what I mean by framelessness, right? Like the, there's not there's not a limit or a frame where you go, okay, well, we've collected all the data we need, uh, and we're going to be subject to that in this data-driven economy that we inhabit. We see it all the time. Um, there's never a point at which, I, I mean, I shouldn't say never. I, I think there are some responsible, um, you know, maybe public service organizations who may say things like, you know what, we're not going to collect that data. And there's certainly kind of, you know, legislative proposals to say, you know what, you can't serve ads that are targeted at the level of the individual. You've, you know, can't go more specific than the postcode or something like this. Um, but but it's, it's not inherent to the process, which is um, we need, you know, we're just going to keep collecting more data and developing more sensors. Um, uh, and that, um, you know, that ongoing process is, 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 I think, accelerated by the very failure of the promise, right? So the very fact that um, this, the amount of data that we've collected doesn't work, you know, people often come along and say, well, you know what, eventually this online economy will realize that all of this data collection like just doesn't work. And maybe it will, but you know, from a psychoanalytic perspective, I'm I'm more skeptical. No, the very fact that it fails will actually just make them think they need to do more, and and collect more. Um, yeah, right. Well, you end your book on a rather dismal note, while pointing out that there are logical deadlocks in the project of automating media and the trajectory that it's been going you don't seem to think it likely on its own that this will provide a path for combating automation. So you end the book saying, quote, we will have to invent new ways for configuring the systems at our disposal in socially constructive ways. And this will entail reconstructing society from the ground up, a prospect that all too often means building on the ruins, end quote. I'm wondering if you could share any examples of attempts at this reconstruction that you see happening today, whether it's work you yourself are involved in or other examples at large. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is, you know, in a way, the ending of that book is a, is a, um, it's, it's a kind of response to what I know, how you, how you're supposed to end these books, which is, you know, you, you kind of, um, you kind of, write about all the things that you think are alarming and then you kind of point in the direction of, but there's still this possibility. And, um, and I just thought like, 
I don't know. I'm not really feeling that at the moment. I'm just, <laughs> and, I, and I, I'm not, I'm certainly not an accelerationist, you know, that I, I want to see um, uh, the ruins happen. I, I don't, I, like, I'm not inhabiting that space. I, I'm not like, oh, well, let's just get to the ruins quick and then, <laughs> then we can rebuild. Um, which, but, but that means that, you know, kind of my actual practical responses are pretty classic, right? In the sense of, um, I'm interested in, in approaches to the use of technology that um, counter the power relations that look to me to be pathological um, uh, and the tendencies um, that are reinforced by those power relations. So um, uh, a colleague and friend, Christian Fuchs, has participated in, in writing uh, a manifesto for public service internet. And I, I've been arguing for public service social media for a while. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I just think um, uh, if we could change the power relations uh, whereby the ownership of these resources um, is allocated and controlled, that would be the direction that I would want to move in. Um, it's really interesting, you know, I, I, um, at the time in Australia when um, the news media bargaining code was under negotiation and, uh, you know, Facebook and Google both threatened to pull their news services and Facebook actually, you know, did uh, evacuate all of the news content on all of these um, Facebook sites. Um, uh, it was, it was quite dramatic, right? You know, all of a sudden I was talking to the folks at the university here and like all of their content had disappeared from their, from their university web pages. They'd been relying on Facebook. And, you know, my response to them was, yeah, you were relying on a private company. They have no obligation to you. In a second, they will do whatever they feel. Like, why would we treat them like a, like a public utility? Why is a public university using a, you know, a commercial infrastructure for its public service messaging? You know, why would they do that? <laughs> I mean, I know why they would do it, but you know, why would they be surprised that it backfires on them? Um, uh, but um, there was a, um, a Green senator who proposed, well, you know, why don't we just build uh, you know, our own you know, uh, search engine? <laughs> and and you know, my response to that was like, yeah, why not? Uh, and I did an interview with somebody in the media who who basically said, "Well, it's it's crazy expensive." Um, and then, but I, then I did the research on the you know the taxes um, that Google has not paid because of the various write offs and deals that it gets. Uh, and if you took that money that it should have paid in taxes, if it w- weren't subject to all of these forms of um, political favoritism, you'd have enough money easily to build. <laughs> to build a public service search engine. You know, um, the response that I get over and over is like, oh, yeah, but, you know, like the government can't do that. The public sector can't do that. You need, you know, the geniuses at, at Silicon Valley to do that. I I, I don't know. I, that to me looks like a failure of the, of the you know, kind of infrastructural imaginary. Um, we used to believe that governments could do things like build interstate highway systems and send people to the moon. And you know, now it's Elon Musk who's, who's, and Jeff Bezos who've taken that over. Um, I think that's a mistake to turn our imaginary over to the to the private sector. So I would like to see initiatives that rehabilitate the infrastructural imaginary of the public sector. Um, I would like to see the. Uh, information resources. I don't think it's going away. Like we're, we're not going to rewind to a, a time when the forms of actionable information that are generated by these um, big data systems, you know, we just retreat from them. It's just not going to happen. But then I think the control of those systems has to be 
um, under you know it has to be under public sector control. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm not saying get rid of the private sector. I'm just saying for these big um, projects that you know uh, we depend upon for our information and communication systems, there has to be a very robust public service infrastructure. I'm fine if there's a private infrastructure too. I'm not I'm not saying there shouldn't be, but I, I think there has to be a really uh, robust public one. I mean, so those those would be the kind of directions I'd I'd be looking in. I mean, one of the projects that I'm working on now. Um, you know, but you can feel the kind of inadequacy of it. But uh, I, I'm I, I'm also really interested in the ways in which some of these tools can be turned <clears throat> back upon the systems that generated them. So um, I'm I, I think one of the projects that I am working on looks at so-called dark ads, so the, the way the advertising environment has changed with the rise of targeted forms of messaging and individual addressable personal devices. Um, it's very different. It's very hard to see the forms of discrimination and predatory advertising uh, um, that are the bread and, and you know, misinformation that are really the bread and butter of the advertising industry. But in the, in the mass media era, there was some accountability for them because they were publicly on display. You could, you could see what they were doing. It's much harder to see in, a, in the online social media environment where ads are targeted individuals and there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of them and they're ephemeral um, and only the people to whom they're targeted see them. So I've developed the system along with colleagues here at Monash and at the um, uh, oh, ARC Center for Automated Decision-Making in Society that's um, you know, meant to provide some accountability for ads. It's a it's a, a browser extension that you put on, and when you go on Facebook, it collects the ads that you see, and it um, connects them with tags that you provide yourself about your own demographics, so that you can see who's getting what type of advertising. And you know, it's a tiny, tiny, you know, it's a less than a drop of water in in the ocean, but um, it's meant to model. What would it mean if we took these information tools and used them for purposes of accountability and transparency um, uh, um, in the face of those systems that are increasingly controlling our lives and information environment in ways that are opaque to us? So, you know, those would be some thoughts in that direction. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Well, the final question I have that we like to ask our authors is, do you have any books coming out soon or any new projects you're working on? I do have a book coming out with my co-author, Neil Selwyn, who's in the School of Faculty of Education at, at Monash on face recognition technology. Um, and I'm working on a bigger book about face recognition technology because I'm really interested, you know, I, I think the technology has got a lot of attention for, you know, good reasons. Um but a lot of the concern about it is focused on, you know, rightly, I think, because these are real concerns on accuracy and bias. Um, but I, I, I think we need to supplement those concerns with an understanding of um, how power might deploy the capability to recognize individuals as they move through shared and public space in ways that are quite familiar to us from the online world. We know the model that's based on identification and specification and individual level tracking, which can then be aggregated with the profiles of everybody else. Um, and I think that's coming to physical space. And so I'm, I'm trying to kind of outline what I think, uh, what I think might be hopefully a, um, foundations for the types of arguments that would allow us to see, um, 
what the concerns are that would supplement our concerns about bias and accuracy. What, what, what are the concerns around power, control, and governance? So those are a couple of things. Great. Well, I think we've taken up enough of your time now. Um, I know I've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. Thank you so much, Mark, for taking time to talk about your book. Thanks for your interest and your patience. I hope the listeners have the same. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will. Thanks.